You can uh, wind up over in John chapter 12 tonight as we continue looking at some of these living proof witnesses. And we're kind of in the middle of sort of a two-part subset, if you will, of where God speaks from heaven. Tonight we want to talk about the witness of glory. Uh, the witness that the witnesses make is all about the glory of God and that, that this has been accomplished. And we'll look at that text in just a moment. But I, I, let me just, let's just do a little exercise since you've got everybody all informalized, if that's a word. Uh, what's the, if I were to ask you this question, you can give whatever opinion you want. What would be the, the just like the life-changing, essential big moments of a, of a person's life? What, what, what would you put, if you said, just what are the few big moments in life, what would you put in, in that, uh, that list? No particular order. What's that? Marriage. Marriage, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When you got saved, when you come to know Christ, absolutely. What's that? Being parents, having children born, absolutely. I saw I heard something over here. You said that too? Okay. Graduation, a graduation event, yes. Any others? What? Yes, losing someone you love, a parent. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. First job, yeah, perhaps. For some of us, we may like to forget that, but it's certainly memorable, yeah. Grandchildren, yes, yes. And there's someone in the room going to quickly say, great-grandchildren, uh, so that's okay too. But have you noticed it's a very small list? I mean... I mean, we could add a few more, but that pretty much covers the big life-changing moments in life. Now, if you were to kind of back that out and, and say, let's take all of human history, all of the, from, the, from the creation week till, till now and forward into the future, what we know of God's plan in the future, what, what would you put on that list? What would be the, like the big, big picture, big defining moments in all of human history? The fall. The fall. Absolutely, Genesis chapter 3, man was living in the Garden of Eden, man and woman, that's only two there were, and everything was well, and everything, the, the environment, the world, everything changed. What's that? The first wife. You mean Adam's first wife? or what? Or, <laughs> only wife. I don't know where you're going with that, and I don't want to know. <laughs> I'm sorry, John's talking in the back. What? The cross. Absolutely. And frankly, for... As we think about it, that's, that's probably, I want to go back a little bit, the creation, fall, and the cross. I mean, those have to just stand out as just, everything's different because of them. Can you think of any others? The flood, yeah, absolutely. The world, the world Peter says, that then was perished. The resurrection. You really can't, you can't really divorce the, and we're going to look at that tonight as well, that from the cross, but let's make sure we get that in. The Tower of Babel. God confounding the languages and spreading things out, altering history. I see a hand clear in the back. You, okay. You, I do have to preach tonight. Okay, so just. Okay. Yes. I wanted to use on that section that part of the song, John three sixteen, which is time with uh, love lifted. Okay. Now you can think of that 
Okay. Love of God. Love of God. How, thank you very much. How about going forward? What, what do we anticipate next the big thing? Church removed from this planet. And, and then keep going. Judgment and then Christ coming back to set up this, this little kingdom. I'm sorry, what? Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We talked about that tonight. Well, in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus is troubled. And he's troubled about one of these kind of major events. And he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Question mark. This hour, this moment, this absolutely defining event, really in all of human history, is what he's focused on, and we already identified it. This is, this is the cross slash resurrection. But he's, he's about to suffer. And this is why we sort of talked about that a little bit this morning when we were in Luke 22. And when the hour had come, Jesus said, I desire, with fervent desire, desire to have this Passover with you, the 12 that are there gathered. This moment. And that's what he's focused on. What, he says, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He said, should I pray that prayer, in other words? You know very well that he never prayed that prayer to be saved from this hour. Uh, he, he does pray that the cup be removed from him. I preached about this a few, a few, uh, a couple, three months ago, something like this. I don't think he was praying that Lord save me from the cross. I think he was praying, Lord save me from being permanently separated from you, death. In other words, he was trusting in the Father to raise him back to life. That's for another day. But I want to just think about this this thing of of the hour. Actually, it appears about ten times, probably more, but at least ten major times. In the Gospel of John. In John and I'm just going to read these quickly. You don't need to try to turn there because we don't have time for that. In John 4.23 it says, But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And He uses that phrase more than once. The hour is come, the hour is coming, future tense, and now is. In other words, things are changing. We're moving to this event and now is because the now is... The change agent, the person who's facilitating that is himself. John 5.25, he says this, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear Him will live. It's a pretty remarkable statement. The hour is coming, and now is. It's going to be tied up in what I'm accomplishing him, accomplishing through Him. And he goes on and says this in 5.28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And of course, not that much further into John, you have the story of being at the tomb of Lazarus. And you remember that remark, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes crawling out, bound in the grave clothes. If Jesus hadn't identified it as Lazarus, every grave would have been evacuated right then. Because someday when he will call all the dead back to stand before him. In John chapter 7... There was a dispute going on over who he was and so forth, and they were threatening him. And it says in John seven thirty, he says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
John says the reason he did not uh, suffer arrest or worse at that particular point, it's not time. The hour hadn't come. It's waiting. And here we find in in chapter 12, the hour has come. In chapter 8, verse 20, another similar scene in the temple. It says, when these words Jesus spoke of the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. So that, that's, that's the two kind of prime ones I wanted you to look at because it is f- facing that one. And then we come to here in chapter 12. And he says, this hour has come. Should I be delivered from this hour? He was fully willing to go through with what was going on. But now I'm reading on, 28. He does pray this prayer. He, he refuses to pray the prayer, Lord, save me from this hour. By the way, question. If he had prayed that prayer, would God the Father have saved him from that hour? Remember he said, remember he told Peter, when, when Peter pulls out the sword, he said, do you not know I could pray the Father, did he send 12 legions of angels? So, so if he'd, we, we should be thankful that Jesus refused to pray this prayer. But he does pray this prayer. Father, glorify your name. You accomplish all that you want. You be all that you... Uh, in this world, be all on display, all that you are. May people know you, see you, appreciate you, glorify your name. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the second, excuse me, this is the third of three times that it is recorded in scripture that God the Father speaks from heaven during the ministry of Christ. The first was at his baptism. We looked at that last Sunday night. Uh, the second, which we looked at a few weeks ago, was at the transfiguration. And this is now the third. And it almost comes at, a, at an odd time. I mean, the baptism, we understand, that's a significant moment. The transfiguration, its glory is revealed. And there's Moses and Elijah and on the mountain and the cloud and all that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But here he just says, my soul is troubled. I'm, I'm, he, he's getting close to this moment. He was feeling the weight and the press of it. He says, what am I going to do? Am I going to pray the Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Then the voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This voice from heaven confirmed that Jesus fully completed his mission, which was a mission of redemption. And notice, I, I skipped over it a moment ago. Can you go back to our Deuteronomy passage there for just a moment, Jeremy? Uh, the, the Bible verse here. This is, our, this is what we kind of built this whole series on because God says that to verify something of significance, particularly in a legal sense, he simply says this, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And God sends witnesses in all these key events. So when Jesus says, I'm not going to pray this prayer for, to save me, but I want to simply glorify you, Heavenly Father. He comes to that point where God speaks from heaven. And here you have this multiplicity of witnesses. You have God the Father speaking from heaven. Well, let's let's back up a little bit. You have Jesus speaking to the Father. You have God the Father speaking to to those that are below. And notice there's other witnesses involved. Look at 29. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. What was that? It must have been thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, 
it would appear from just that little bit of information that they heard a noise, they heard a rumble, they heard a, something audible, but they probably could not detect distinctly the message. And that occurs other places as well in Scripture. But they identified that there was something said. And those that got close to it, well, it must have been an angel speaking to them. So they knew something had happened. So you have the witness of man, the witness of Christ, the witness, which is above all, the witness of God the Father speaking from heaven to say, I have glorified it, his name, through Jesus, and I will glorify it again, glorify the name of God through Jesus. So let's talk about this in just four different little sections today, and then we're going to stop for some lessons. But the first thing we want to talk about, the hour. The hour was the purpose for his ministry. When he talks about for this purpose... For this purpose, I came to this hour. This hour, we've already talked about it, is the crucifixion and the resurrection. But it all is revolving around that. So let's just put up there three, three things I want to share with you. The hour was the purpose for his ministry, particularly in his death and his resurrection. So it is going to provide this redemption for, 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 for those who would believe. Now, it provides the payment for all, but it only becomes available as far as... Not available, wrong word. It only becomes effectual for those who believe. So there's an expansiveness, but there's also this requirement that it has to come to a point of belief. Secondly, uh, the next one, redemption for all belief, then Jesus refused to avoid this. He would not avoid this. In other words, it is not optional. For this, he says, should I pray this prayer? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. If you think about it, one of the mind-blowing things of salvation is how they're, sometimes people get bothered by this too. You Christians, we Christians, believe, the Word of God asserts, that there's one way to salvation. And people get bothered by that, particularly in this world where we want, everyone wants to believe whatever they want to believe and set their own terms and, and believe that man is somehow in charge of his own destiny. But there's only one way. But it's not just that God just says, well, you know what, I'm just going to pick one way just to show them something. Or I'm going to pick one way because that's the way I set it up. Actually, there can only be one way. It's not just that he chose one way. There could only be one way. Because it required several elements that when Jesus says, I'm not going to pray, Father, save me for this hour. This is the purpose I came this hour. And what he does in the next, uh, in the next bits of the story, the parts of the story going forward of, the, of his arrest and his crucifixion and all that, he accomplishes... This non-optional message, mission I should say, and the message is simply this. It required someone sinless to die in place of everyone else who was sinful. By absolutely the virtue of what is required to appease, to satisfy, to, to, to fully pay the price for our sins to God, it required someone who fully kept the law. Remember we talked about that when we were talking about the, about the baptism of Jesus. He said, I've got to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We talked about it when Anna and Simeon met Jesus at his, at, when he was presented at the temple to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law. Galatians 4.4 4 says that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law. Have you ever thought about how many laws people like us have broken? I mean, God's laws, not civil laws, some of those too. But if you just take the Ten Commandments... I mean, it's guilty, 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 guilty. You might say, well, I've never killed anybody. 
I've never cheated on my wife or whatever. Well, when it comes down to heart and mind and, and spirit, it's guilty one through ten. Times who knows what kind of a factor of, of rebellion. We are just guilty. The only thing we can do is break the law. We are slaves. He tells us we're slaves, servants to sin. It required somebody who was sinless and perfectly kept the law. Only the God-man, Jesus, could do that. And somehow, in, in, and I don't understand the incarnation any better than you do, so I just would say it this way, somehow in him being born of a woman but being conceived by the Spirit of God, he is fully God, fully man. How that works, it's hard. To put, we can't really put it together. But in that union of his person, he had the unique capacity to be sinless throughout his entire experience before and after as well, obviously. So it required that. He fulfilled that. Jesus would not avoid that. It was not optional. That was the role he played. And that's the lesson I want to share with us tonight. We need to accept his role for you. That's the lesson. He was willing to fulfill that role for us. Remember we talked last time we were together about how God the Son glorified and fulfilled the will of God the Father in the power of the Spirit, this arrangement. He took that role. He accepted that. And you and I need to accept whatever role God has for us. We're all different. We have different gifts, abilities, experiences. But we have a role to play. Now, a few weeks ago, Julie and I decided on a Friday night that we were going to go out and do something enjoyable, Okay. And, uh, you know, I like to take pictures. I like photography. So I took my camera along, and I took this picture. And only one person in the room will probably know what it's about. Do you know what that's about, Rich? Okay. That is the nickname for the Nitro Wildcat Marching Band. Why are they called the Pride of Park Avenue? Is the school school on Park Avenue? Okay. Oh, okay. There, I just explained it for you. Okay. What you probably know, uh, Rich is our worship director in his spare time. He's the band director at Nitro High School. That's what he does in his spare time. We were going to go see the band. We, we've tried to do that several years. And we get there, and we're walking in, and, and Julie says, Look, there's a convertible over there. And there's these, these girls in these fancy gowns. And she says, do you think it's homecoming? So the only game that the band does not get on the field or play a single song was the game we went to. Nitro won. Yay, the Wildcats. But we went, we went specifically to see the band, and they were down there somewhere. Couldn't you have them, like, play the fight song or something? I mean, they didn't do anything, Rich. Did you take the night off? Were you there? Okay. Now, there's a reason I'm telling this story. So we're enjoying it. But there's one thing at football games, and I didn't take any pictures of them, but there's all the cheerleaders there, okay? And I've never quite fully understood... I don't think the football players hear the cheerleaders, but it's just part of the scene, okay? But I I heard someone a a while back, and I I don't even remember who said this, but I remember this in a conversation. But someone said, you know what, I I just want to be a cheerleader for the family of God. And I thought, and this was, this this person uh, just said, I want to cheer other people on. I want to be, I want to be saying amen when when something is, is, is said that's good. I want to be part of encouraging people and whatever. If you can't be anything else, you don't even have to go to Park Avenue to do it, but be a cheerleader. Whatever your role is, whether you've you, you got a public role or not or whatever, 
Just be part of that grand people of God to be a cheerleader for God. Okay, the hour, secondly, was for the glory of God. That's the second thing. Thank you for letting me tell that story. And I did know you were there. It says, Father, glorify your name, verse 28. Then this voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The hour is for the glory of God. We talked about this, and I just said this a moment ago. I got a little out of order. But just to review this, God the Son did the will of God the Father in the power of God the Spirit. We talked about how that's an example to us. So he was here on this earth, but for the, but for the intent to bring glory to God the Father. His intent was not his self-aggrandizement, but was to put the spotlight on God the Father. And in his humility, he humbled himself and became a servant. And, and Paul writes to the Philippians, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, he humbled himself because that was the role that he played because he was all about putting the spotlight on God the Father. And he says, he says glorify your name. All I, I don't want to be saved from this. Even though I'm troubled, I don't want to weigh out. I don't want to hit the eject button. I don't want to call in the, the, the reinforcements. I don't want to call for some rescue plan. What I want is to glorify you. And then God speaks from heaven. He says, I have glorified it. I've glorified it. How had he glorified it? It had been through Jesus' life, through Jesus' ministry, and through Jesus keeping the law. So he says, I have glorified it in what you have done. I have glorified it in, in this plan that is unfolding. He says, that has happened to this point. And then he makes this astounding statement. He says, I will again. I have glorified Let me read it from the text. He says, I have, glorif- I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. It's not finished. And you go through this, this moment of, of where everything is, is, is seemingly lost. Everything is, can you imagine how the disciples felt? One of their own betrayed him. They're scattered, worried for their own lives. Jesus is, they thought there was going to be a kingdom. I mean, the night before Jesus was arrested, this is right after what I read this morning to you, they were fighting over, are you going to be first? No, I'm going to be first. Who's going to be first in the kingdom of God? They thought he was going to set up this wonderful earthly kingdom right then, right there. And now he's dead, horribly mistreated. But then that Sunday morning dawned. After all the gloom, all the darkness, all of the, all of the, all of the anguish, all of the emotional pain, some women went to the tomb, wondering how we're going to roll that stone away. And when they got there, you know the rest of the story, right? He will glorify it again. Glorify it again. So what's our lesson? Our lives are about to, are just simply this, to glory in him. That's the lesson he wants to remind us. We need to make a big deal about him. We need to put the spotlight on him. I want to give you a little assignment. I'm going to give, I've given it to myself as well. Because sometimes we talk about things being great. Wasn't it great that the sun was shining today? Wasn't that great? Wasn't it great that it got up to, I think I saw on my thermometer, 59 degrees. I really wish for one more. But anyway, it was, it was warmer. It's, it's nice. Everything's good. Had good as, you, as Johnny mentioned, we, we, have, we had good service this morning, good being, but I want you to take an extra step, and I want to discipline myself to take an extra step. Rather just say, oh, isn't it, isn't it great weather? Let's remind ourselves, and if we can put voice to it, just remind ourselves and say we have a great God. You know, oh, that was a great meal. True. 
We have a great God who allowed it and arranged it and provided it. Oh, we have a great opportunity. God provides it. We have a great challenge. Just make sure we attach those great things and just in our heart and our mind, and if we can give voice to it, give thanks to God. Just before I came over here, I was visiting one of our folks that's in the hospital, and, and uh, uh, you pray for Gary Monday. He's in the hospital and, and uh, uh, suffering from a stroke, and, and he said, you just pray for him. So I know many of you got that word already, but, but uh, you know, he said, Pastor, I'm just thankful that it, it could have been far worse. God's been so good to me. And I just, I thought, what a statement, from, even from his sickbed, to be able to give credit and glory to God. May God give us all that ability to do. So just simply this, we are to live so that we glorify him. And then thirdly, we need to remind ourselves that as what was kind of our major theme, that this authenticated this was real. This was seen by eyewitnesses in real time and recorded in documents that have been transmitted to us over all these years and years and years. So the fact that we open our Bible and read it is the, the, the culmination of its, of its being authenticated and we can believe these things. So God has woven into the story and woven into the text and woven into people and places and, and voices so that we can trust that these things are true. It, authenticated by, it was authentic, authenticated by Jesus by his performance, let's say it that way. His keeping the law, his being the one who through the Father glorified the Father in the power of the Spirit. So that's witness number one. Witness number two is the Father's proclamation where he says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then we find witness number three. It was witnessed by those who heard, even if they did not have it distinct, but the record of what was said from heaven is distinctly in the text. This is to authenticate the truth, to to verify that it's true. So that we can go forward when we read these verses of Scripture, we read these accounts of Jesus, we read the sum total of the accounts of Jesus, we can have every confidence to say and to know that these things are true, no matter what people out there may say. I was reading something the other day. I was trying to look up some some facts that just helped me in my research and... and, uh, This particular uh, source I was using said, it has never been definitively proven that Jesus Christ actually lived on this planet. There are people who would say that. And and that's not even saying whether you believe he was the son of God or not. We have no proof, they said, that Jesus, the person known as Jesus Christ ever lived. What more could God do for us? To have people in real time be witnesses and have it documented and authenticated. Don't be, don't, be, don't be pushed around. Don't be bullied by people who say something so utterly ridiculous. And rather than, rather than getting angry, we should just feel sad that those people choose to live that way. So, lesson, live in confidence. You know, others don't get to define us. And this is, this, this is good for our own walk and course through life. Sometimes we, let, we, we allow other people to define us. That could either be positive or negatively. Oh, you're wonderful. You're great. You're perfect. You're the most wonderful creature, beautiful person that's ever lived. If you believe that kind of things about other people telling you, you're letting people define you, and it may not be the whole story. Or you can let people define you by saying, you're terrible, you're worthless, you're no good. 
That's not the whole story either. The person that defines us is the person that spoke from heaven that day. And he says that in our identification with Christ, we are now his children. Don't fall in the trap of letting other people define you. It's so easy. It's so common. It is so what we do. It starts in elementary school. You could go back, I guarantee you, you could go back to the second or third grade, and if you thought about it, you could, you could say, who was the smart one in the class? Who was the pretty one in the class? Who was the athletic one in the class? Who was the, who was the favorite? Who was the teacher's pet? We remember all that stuff. Trouble is we continue to live that way. What we just need to remember is we are, we are the objects of God. We are, the, we are made by God. We have been redeemed by God. God is always with us. He's, we're, we're bound with him in, now and throughout all of eternity. Now, the story goes on just a little bit. I don't want to get too far into it, but since it's part of the context, we need to deal with it. There's one particularly really good statement. We just read 29, verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. By the way, this is the point. This is to authenticate this for us, to say something to us. And notice what he said. This is a powerful statement. There now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan himself. This hour that he's on the cusp of will completely defeat Satan. Now, Satan is not bound. Satan has not been cast out, you know, as far as being around. But his judgment is sure. His, His sentence is sealed. The full execution of that has not taken place, but it's good as done. And then he says, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Those two verses... Say just encapsulates so much of the truth. Satan is defeated. Jesus is the Savior. End of story. I've glorified you. I have glorified you. I will glorify again. Well, verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Be lifted up. He uses that same ter- terminology all the way back in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. The people answered, answered him, verse 34, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Wouldn't you just like to smack him if that would have been appropriate? God just spoke from heaven. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus healed the sick, did all these miracles. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah can't die. I guess they skipped over Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and a few other choice passages. <coughs> Excuse me, I didn't mean to do that. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, 35, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. And of course, Jesus is the light. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of, the, of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and and was hidden from them. But look at 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. You see, this speaking from heaven marks the hour of decision for those folks, and what was accomplished marks the hour of decision for us. And I know we're speaking primarily, I, I assume, to people who have been born again, trusted Christ, but think about this. Here's the either-ors. I'm going to give you two eithers and two ors. No, that's probably not the proper way to do it. But either accept that Satan is defeated, either accept that salvation is complete, or 
you can be the skeptical people like they were or seek more proof or choose to work, walk in darkness. Everybody you know, everybody we are, everybody that's anybody is in one of those categories. Either you've come on the side where Satan is defeated and Jesus has completed all that salvation has required or you're walking in darkness and you just need one more sign. This is years ago. I worked a sales job. The first church I pastored, I was bivocational. So I'd go there and sell stuff and then pastor on the, as well. But uh, there's a guy who was on the sales force come, and he knew I was a pastor. And, and he was a student at one of our universities and did this work part-time. And I remember we had a conversation about uh, just, you know, about some spiritual things. And he said, you know what? I would believe, I'd believe all that stuff that you cling to. If, and this is what he said, I remember saying, if God would just speak in an audible voice from heaven, then I'd believe in him. Now, I didn't reference this passage at the time. I did try to steer him that God's already revealed all he needs to reveal. But that's exactly what happens here. God spoke from heaven. He was the light. And these people said, you know what? We can't accept that. We can't believe that. So for us, we need to avoid the skepticism of him and his works. Now, we don't do it this way. We, we don't disbelieve that he's real. We don't disbelieve that he was here. We don't disbelieve the word. But sometimes God does something spectacular and we just put it in the category, oh, that was a coincidence. Or that would have happened anyway. Or have you ever played this little game with yourself? Something happens. Did God really do that or was that just ordinary? Was that, was that supernatural or was that ordinary? Was that miraculous or was that just something that would have happened anyway? We play this little game. At least, at least I, I'm aware of it. Maybe you do as well. But here's what I want you to encourage you to do. Whenever you see something happen, just assume God's at work because somehow, some way, in some fashion, he is attached to it. Whether he caused it, willed it, allowed it, knew about it, however you want to look at it, the God who is God controls everything. So don't waste your time saying, well, did God really do that? Just go ahead and give him credit for it. Obviously, it's, it, there's, there's evil and all that, but that's not what I'm talking about. You understand what I'm talking about. Those blessings, just go ahead and give God credit for it. One more time, let me take you back to this one little, the epicenter of this whole story. He prays in 28, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 